Hey, bitches. Hey, guys. <laughs> what, what was that? <laughs> hey, bitches. <laughs> Welcome back to the Eerie Thoughts podcast episode eight. Gus, my cat, is causing quite a bit of chaos around me. So if yeah, you can hear that noise, good. I'm so sorry. He's eating my laptop. He was just eating my laptop. Now he's eating my microphone. Buddy, get out of here. I know. I'm waiting for Baker to come up. He's probably trying to sleep. Sick of everybody's bullshit. He's an eepy boy. Eepy boy. I'm going to beat this cat. I'm going to throw him away. The way he terrified me last night, though. Baker? Yes. Look at Gus. (laughs) Did you see him? (laughs) Just staring at you. Kitty kitty. You want to tell our listeners how Baker terrified you last night? Yeah, so I get home. It was supposed to be two. No, it was supposed to be 3.30 because of the uh, hour time change. Did you just hear me have a stroke? Yeah. I love that. Um, I took him out. It was probably like 2.30-ish. And he had to go potty. And, you know, it's super quiet out, whatever pitch black walking and you know he just kind of did a little tinkle like a good boy (laughs) and he had to take a midnight poo and he was like walking past our shed or like towards our shed just immediately stopped dead in his tracks and like lowered his head and i i'm not even joking you every hair on his back stood up straight he like lowered his head horrifying did not bark I, I he might have did like a low growl but I couldn't hear him and the entire time I was out there I kept thinking of that TikTok he sent me oh which one was that I don't know what you're <laughs> referring to <laughs> with a hat man just sneaking casually, up on you casually walking out behind that girl yeah that was terrifying the way I ran into my house and I kept yeah. like shoving Baker behind me (laughs) was he following you yeah he thought like i was playing (laughs) i'm like no i'm playing with your life literally terrified that my life's gonna be taken away and he's out there doing zoomies so i kept like shoving him back i'm like (laughs) your job is to protect me yeah what do i even have you for yeah did you go and look at that spot today uh no (laughs) <laughs> make sadie go make sadie go look sadie i think there's a monster by the shed can you check check for mommy yeah that's terrible i hate that yeah i don't ever want that to happen again <laughs> put a camera out there and see if you can catch a skinwalker i know that was a hat man and like I think there were like two cats fighting too because I kept hearing like something. I was like, well, somebody's getting brutally attacked. Yeah, I don't. I do not love that. That I I don't as well. In the words of our wise boss, that's not ideal. (laughs) (laughs) Also, in the words of our wise boss, fair. hate him (laughs) he doesn't listen to this anyway 
are you ready to ruin me? Yeah, do you want me to go first? Yeah, that's fine. I have what I'm guessing is going to be a really long story. So we also said that once and it ended up being our shortest. Yeah, but I have 15 pages of notes this time versus my usual five to six ish. Uh, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) so I think it's going to be long. I'm just guessing. So I am going to tell everyone today about the basically miracle or amazing survival story of Julianne Kopka. I am assuming that is how you say her last name because I listened to Morbid's episode covering her and that is how Elena pronounced it and I trust her so (laughs) I'm gonna pronounce it that way but I'm pretty much just gonna say Julianne so so Julianne was born in Lima Peru which is the capital city on October 10th 1954 um she was a child of two German zoologists um her mother Maria and her father Hans Wilhelm I'm gonna be calling him Hans for the probably the remainder of the story so I have like a lot of background on their parents just because a lot of it is super interesting to me and I just wanted to include it so if you don't want to hear all this background maybe skip ahead like 10 minutes but I'm gonna tell you about it you Sam have no choice (laughs) love that for me (laughs) so her parents met as doctoral students in Kiel Hopefully that is how you pronounce that. Her father, Hans, decided to immigrate to Peru because there weren't a whole lot of jobs in their field in Germany. So Hans reached out to the university in Lima. He basically just asked if they had any openings for a young zoologist with a doctorate degree. And then they ended up forwarding the letter to the Natural History Museum in Lima, who told him, yes, like, we can use you, basically. Travel was super difficult in Europe at this point, so Hans had to spend a lot of the trip walking and hitchhiking through mountains, through countless countries. Um, He tried to find a boat to take him to South America. He was not having very much luck at this, so he mostly was just like walking at night to avoid being arrested as a vagabond. So this whole trip took him a total of, do you want to guess how long it took him? To, to get from germany to peru in the 50s yeah um i'm gonna say i feel like my answer is gonna be wrong and i'm dumb <laughs> so let let me just let me do three weeks close <laughs> is it is it like what i said close last time <laughs> a year and a half oh <laughs> So you were almost there. I should have rounded up. If you rounded up, you basically had it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it took him a year and a half to make it from Germany to Peru. He walked 20 to 25 miles per day. He covered thousands of miles and many mountainscapes on foot. Let but... me be very clear about this. <laughs> Could not be me. W- would never be me. Will never be me. If I'm ever in that situation, just know it's against my will. (laughs) So Hans and Maria were engaged at this time, and then Maria decided to follow him after she finished her degree, which was super unheard of at this time. 
she was an unmarried woman moving with a man to a different country let alone also being a female scientist so she was doing the thing her dad was not happy about this decision but maria was the type of girl once she got an idea in her head she was gonna do it there was no stopping her relatable (laughs) so the couple got married in lima soon after arriving and just a little like tidbit that i found funny um maria did not speak very much spanish at this time so it was really hard for her to follow the wedding ceremony so at one point it got awkwardly silent and the priest said to her senora you have to say see now so he had to tell her to say i do basically (laughs) i just thought that was adorable so her parents were world-renowned zoologists her mom maria was peru's leading ornithologist which is a bird scientist wow And her father, Hans, had written comprehensive work on the animal and plant kingdoms um, in Peru. The couple also discovered some new animal and plant species. So they were like crazy scientists. Wow. My sister can relate with her sea and biology. (laughs) (laughs) She's basically a scientist. (laughs) Literally just sign the paper. Like, she's so pretty. (laughs) Oh, my God, the prettiest. (laughs) So when Julianne was born, her parents were just absolutely obsessed with her. Um, Her father wanted a little girl, so he got exactly what he wanted. Her parents gave her the name Julianne, which means the cheerful one. And she says now that that name suits her well. So around the time of her birth, her grandmother on her father's side and her father's sister were staying with them in Peru. Um, her father's brother had also immigrated to Talise, Peru. T-A-U-L-I-S. I'm going to go with Talise. Where her parents would visit them several times. Visit him several times. So the brother ends up dying suddenly of, quote, spasms. And I guess the death is still unresolved. Like of what actually, actually what exactly happened. I'm assuming that's like seizures or something like that. Probably. So when Julianne was a year old, her parents planned a two-month-long trip to the jungle. Julianne stayed behind with her aunt and grandmother, but this trip was cut short when a truck hit a fallen power line, which hit Maria and Hans. They were both injured pretty badly, and Maria ended up losing her sense of smell and taste from a skull fracture. Oh my god. I know. So as soon as they recovered, they immediately resumed their research work. As soon as Julianne was old enough, her parents would bring her along on these jungle trips where they would hike for days, tent camp, sleep under the stars. Julianne loved this and would keep herself entertained for hours in nature. In Lima, Julianne attended the German-Peruvian Alexander von Humboldt School. She spoke both German and Spanish. She remembers her childhood as being very pleasant. They had a maid that Julianne was super close to growing up, and she still has a relationship with her to this day. So all of this, like, she was a a young, you know, a young kid. Um, Me as a young kid, I would absolutely hate having to go and live basically, like, in a very remote, you know, like, Mm -hmm. jungle environment. But she she was very happy with this. She really enjoyed it. So as an ornithologist, her mother was always bringing home sick and injured birds and nursing them back to health. 
they would also raise hatched chicks and they never had one die in her mother's care. So she was really good at what she did. Mm -hmm. Julianne grew up always being around animals. In 1968, Julianne's parents founded a biological research center that they named Panguana in the middle of the Peruvian rainforest. So the plan was to live on site at Panguana for five years. So they were in close proximity with, to their research field. Then at some point after that, they planned to return to Germany where the parents were originally from. So at this time, Julianne was 14 years old and was like less than thrilled about leaving behind her friends in Lima and moving to the jungle. She wasn't like mad about it or anything, but she just like wanted to be like a teenager with her friends, basically. Right. Um, but as soon as they got there, she immediately fell in love with it. So she was she was completely fine with it. So in Panguana, Julianne and her parents lived basically right alongside nature. In the early days when they first got to the jungle, they lived in a hut, which Julianne describes in her book as having no walls. The Ooh. hut stood on stilts to avoid being flooded and to also avoid snakes and insects. <laughs> Eventually, they had palm wood plank walls put in, which was pretty common in native huts. The roof was covered with palm leaf branches. I also want to mention, I didn't say this in the beginning, about 95% of my notes come from Julianne's book. And I will put a link to it in the show notes because it's really good. I'm going to have to read that one. Yeah. So in this hut, there were two rooms. There was a basically a larger room for her parents and then a smaller room for Julianne and then a porch where they ate and worked. At first, when they first got there, they slept on air mattresses in sleeping bags until they eventually got normal beds with mattresses with mosquito nets to keep bugs and spiders from dropping onto them from the roof. So this was like not a house. This is literally a hut. So they prepared their meals on a log fire or a kerosene stove. They did not have a refrigerator, so they preserved meat by salting or smoking it. They had no electricity because they didn't want to have a generator, which was loud and it would scare away the animals. They lived by candlelight and flashlights. So all this to say, just to show you, like, Julianne was super comfortable, like, in this jungle environment. Mm -hmm. So she lived there with her parents at Penguana for almost two years. She was homeschooled by them. Um, she got to know the jungle super well, as we have established. She learned all about some of the different plants, which ones were poisonous, which ones were safe, different animals. Here is a quote from Julianne. She said, I learned early that we're afraid only of things we don't know. Human beings have a tendency to destroy everything that frightens them, even if they cannot begin to conceive of its worth. She was so wise, or she is so wise, she's still alive. Wow, that's yeah. deep. Yeah. We have already established this is a survival story. So she is alive. So oh <laughs> as I mentioned, she was homeschooled by her parents during this time. She got her school material from a friend in Lima who would mail it to her. Her parents always made sure to get after her to keep up with her schoolwork. Her father, Hans, was really good at math. Julianne struggled with math. So one day, Hans decided to basically just start over from scratch and reteach Julianne basic math. And this ended up working, and her grade, grades shot up, which I think is awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So after a year and a half of this, like, homeschooling situation, the educational authorities got involved, 
and basically told her in order to take her graduation exams, she needed to attend regular school because they weren't really sure about, you know, the whole homeschooling situation at this point, which I think is fair. Yeah. So in March 1970, she returned to Lima to attend school there again. So again, this was not a negative experience for Julianne. She would go back, finish school out with her friends, and then return to Panguana on her breaks. And then after she finished school. She describes her remaining school years as a wonderful, lighthearted time that she spent with her peers. So, (laughs) here we go. So in November of 1971... Maria returned to Lima and then had planned to fly back to to fly back to Pacalpa, which is like the city nearest to where Panguana was. So they would have to fly to Pacalpa when they wanted to go to Panguana and they would have to take like a day and a half trip from Pacalpa to Panguana, the research station. So um, she planned to fly back to Pacalpa on December 23rd to be with Hans, her husband, as soon as possible. Despite being able to fly from Lima to Pacalpa, the trip still took several days, depending on water level of the rivers, on the roads, and how fast you found a boat. So it wasn't an easy task. Mm-hmm. So Maria asked Julianne to go with her on the 23rd, but Julianne had a graduation ceremony on the 23rd, and on the night before that, she had a graduation ball, which she was, it was a really big dear, deal for her. She was really excited about it. So of course, Maria understood. She wanted her to experience that. I hear my cat just obliterating something in my kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it is. He's got the zoomies. (laughs) (laughs) So Maria tried to book a flight with it being nearly Christmas time. All the flights were booked up on every airline except for, I'm going to say Lansa, L-A-N-S-A. It's an acronym. Um, Lansa Airline. Lanza had already lost two planes in crashes, and this plane was their only remaining plane. I... No. Yeah. I already hate this so much. (laughs) So Hans wanted them to just wait until they could get a flight with a different airline, even if it meant being like a few days after Christmas. Um, he, He didn't want them to risk it. Maria insisted, stating, not every plane is going to crash. So she booked two seats for her and Julianne. So when they got to the airport on December 24th, it was packed, obviously. Everyone was trying to get last-minute tickets. Filmmaker Werner Herzog was one of the people whose flight had gotten canceled, and he was trying to get a seat on Lansa 508. He wasn't able to... And Julianne would find out later that the two probably encountered each other at some point. And spoiler alert, um, Werner Herzog ends up making a movie with Julianne. Ooh. So, yeah. So shortly after 11 a.m., the flight was called. Julianne and her mother see the plane, and to them it looks great. It is a Lockheed Model L-188A. However, this type of plane was designed for use in the desert and had already been taken out of service in the U.S. for years. It has trouble handling turbulence because its wings were fastened firmly to the fuselage, unlike other planes. They would also find out later that this plane was made almost entirely out of spare parts. Oh, shit. (laughs) 
Julianne was seated in 19F, which was the window seat, beside her mother, who was in the middle seat, and then there was another man in the aisle seat, a row of three. So they were in the row, second from the back. Maria is a nervous flyer. Julianne is excited. Maria says, it's totally unnatural that such a bird made out of metal takes off into the air. So this flight was supposed to be about an hour long, flying over the Amazon rainforest. About 20 minutes into the flight, they were served a sandwich and a drink. Everyone was in high spirits, ready to get to their families for the holidays. Ten minutes later, the stewardess comes around for trash. At this point in time, they hit a storm. And Julianne says this is like nothing she has ever felt before. Typically, when flying, pilots try to avoid bad weather. They will fly an alternate route to get away from it, even if it adds extra time to the flight. This pilot, according to Julianne, flew straight into it without even attempting to avoid it. Julianne uh, called it, quote, a cauldron of hell. Oh, no. They were flying into a dark storm cloud. The plane was bouncing around from turbulence. Lightning flashed all around, and people's luggage was falling out of the overhead compartments and hitting people and just bouncing around the plane. I feel like that's something, like, you would see in a movie. Yeah. Well, I was going to say you can, but that actually doesn't happen in her movie, but you can hear her talk about it in her movie. Mm -hmm. People were panicking, crying, screaming. Julianne and her mother held hands. Julianne had just gone on a trip a few weeks prior to our... Arequipa, where on the return flight to Lima, she experienced turbulence. Some of her classmates were becoming physically ill because of this, but Julianne was unfazed. She even said she enjoyed it, but this was something different. During this turbulence, Maria said, I hope this goes all right. Maria had experienced an engine malfunction on one of her trips to the U.S. Nothing happened, and the plane was able to land safely with one engine, but it was nerve-wracking to her, to say the least. So suddenly, they see a bright flash of light. Julianne says she's not sure if it's lightning or an explosion or what it was. She said she lost all sense of time and couldn't tell if it was minutes or a fraction of a second. Then she says, quote, With a jolt, the tip of the airplane falls steeply downward. Even though I'm in a window seat all the way at the back, I can see the whole aisle to the cockpit, which is below me. Oh, oh my god, no. <laughs> yeah. So they're falling downward. People are screaming. Um, next to Julianne, Maria calmly says, quote, now it's all over. Oh. The roaring of the turbines is so loud, and then all of a sudden, nothing. No more engine roar or screams. Julianne said in what seemed like a blink of an eye, her mother is no longer next to her, and she is no longer in the plane. She's alone, strapped to her seat, outside of the plane 10,000 feet in the air falling oh shit so in his text wings of hope in the book titled voyages to hell werner herzog wrote she did not leave the plane the plane left her which is exactly what happened i the goosebumps that i have right now <laughs> dude i know i could not imagine and like you're not even like free falling you're literally still in your seat yeah but you but like you are falling no 
So Julianne can only hear the roar of the air as she is falling and she sees the canopy of trees spinning, getting closer to her. So she's in her seat and it's like spinning. And I, it just makes me think about like, did you have one of those trees or do you have one of those trees that we called them helicopters, the little oh, like yeah. Yeah. Seed leaf thingies, like where you throw them and they spin coming down. That's what I think of is like yeah. what's happening to her. So yeah, she sees the canopy of trees spinning, getting closer to her. She loses consciousness before the impact and has no memory of it, which thankfully so. Yes, thank God. So while she's unconscious, she has two very vivid tre- very vivid dreams that she can remember. So in one of the dreams, she's racing at a low height. She's racing at a low height in a dark space along a wall without hitting it as she can hear a roaring humming sound in her ears. So I'm assuming this one happened like as she was falling and that's what like the humming sound is. Cause you know, like if you're dreaming and you hear like your alarm clock or something, it like goes into your dream. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what I'm assuming happened. In the second dream, she feels an urgent need to wash herself because she feels dirty and sticky covered with mud in her dream. She thinks all I have to do is get up and go to the bathtub. So at the moment when she actually wakes up, she realizes that she's under her seat and her seatbelt is unfastened. She loses consciousness again for the rest of that day and night. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she's, I mean, she just fell 10,000 feet. Yeah. Like fair. Yeah. So she loses consciousness for the rest of the day and night. When she wakes up again the next day, it's clear to her that she was in a plane crash. So she has the image of the canopy of trees forever burned into her memory. She doesn't feel fear. She just feels that she's alone. Her mother isn't next to her. Last thing she knew, her mom was next to her. So she didn't know at the time, but she was only about 30 miles away from Panguana, the research station, um, and which she spent years of her life at. Mm -hmm. Obviously, she has no way of knowing this. So now she decides she's going to try to get up and find her mom. She tries to stand up, but she can't. Everything goes black, obviously. Right. She has a severe concussion, and her left eye is completely swollen shut. The right eye is swollen almost almost shut, so she can barely see out of it. She also lost her glasses that she absolutely needs to be able to see. Um, she reads the time on her watch and sees that it's 9 a.m., but she gets dizzy again and has to lay down. So she has, like, a bad concussion. Yeah. After a little while longer, she tries to get up again. She gets onto her knees again, but everything goes black and she gets dizzy, so she has to lay down again. She keeps trying again and again until she finally successfully gets up. This takes her a while, which I think is fair. Yeah. Considering she just fell from the sky. Yeah. So when she finally successfully gets up, this is when she realizes the extent of her injuries, which were mild considering what, what just happened to her, but she felt that her collarbone had broken and the two ends had been pushed on top of each other so it like wasn't sticking out of her skin but it was like on top of each other overlapped that's horrific but she said this was not painful at all somehow so she's probably got like super adrenaline rush like shock all of it she's got a gash on her left arm or i'm sorry she's got a gash on her left calf which also somehow was not bleeding and she's got a cut on her arm, like on the backside of her arm, so she can't really see it that well. So at this point, she decides to start searching for her mother. She calls out to her, gets no answer, obviously. 
Um, and mind you, she was wearing a very short sleeveless mini dress and white sandals because she just thought she was going home, yeah. basically, to see her family for the holidays. She lost her glasses and one of her sandals. So she had to use the one foot that had the sandal to just kind of like test the ground because she didn't have very good vision. Mm-hmm. Like I said, um, Julianne is now searching for her mother in this jungle. So she happened upon a small stream and she remembered some advice her father gave her. A small stream will flow into a bigger one and then into a bigger one and an even bigger one. And finally, you'll run into help. So she kept this basically in the back of her mind. That's actually super smart. Yeah, she she is super, super smart. Obviously, her parents are super smart and they pass that down to her and she's just a bad bitch. So her trek down the creek started. Sometimes she walked. Other times when it was too thick to walk, she was forced to swim. Her father had warned her that piranhas were only dangerous in the shallows, so she floated midstream, hoping she would eventually encounter other humans. Ooh. I know, dude. This gets so bad. That makes me cringe. The jungle was in the midst of its wet season, so it rained relentlessly. Everything was too damp for her to start a fire. Um, no trees had fruit she knew a lot of what did grow in the jungle was poisonous so she didn't want to touch anything she wasn't familiar with right so basically she spent like the first few days traveling down this stream on the fourth day of her journey julianne heard the noise of king vultures landing she was afraid because she knew they only circled in groups when there was something dead as she what I said, oh no. Yeah. As she continued around the bends of the creek, she found one of the plane's benches with three passengers strapped in head first into the ground. Oh no. So she was paralyzed in fear. This was the first time she ever saw a dead body. Right. And she was afraid one of them could be her mom. Mm. So she took a stick and she poked at one of the women, fearing the worst. She noticed the woman had painted toenails, and she knew her mother never painted her toenails. So relief washed over her that it wasn't her mom, but she also felt guilty for feeling relieved as this was somebody's somebody's family member, somebody's mom, somebody's daughter. Yeah, somebody, somebody. Yeah. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but Julianne is 17 at this point. Oh, she's a baby. Yeah, so she basically had just graduated high school. So she, at this scene that she's at right now, she found a bag of candy um, among these passengers. So she took it. This would be her only food source. There was also a Christmas cake. So like, I think like a fruit cake. Mm -hmm. Um, It was soaked in mud that she ended up leaving. But in hindsight, she agrees that she probably should have taken it. But at that point, I probably wouldn't have either because it was like muddy. Yeah. So she weren't at that point yet. Yeah. So she looks around in the area for other potential survivors. She sees nothing except a few pieces of metal from the plane scattered across the jungle. Um, Around this time, Julianne heard and saw rescue planes and helicopters overhead. But remember, she's in the Amazon jungle. It is a very thick canopy of trees. You can't see a lot of the sky. So for them to find a singular person through all these trees it's hard 
The plane crash had prompted the largest search in Peru's history, but because the jungle was so dense, they couldn't even see the plane wreckage, let alone Julian. Oh, wow. So she continues her journey through the jungle and eventually finish off, finishes off the candy. She doesn't have any other food source at this point, like I said. And yeah, she doesn't want to mess with any of the plants or anything like that that she doesn't recognize. She does drink a ton of water from the stream. She doesn't really feel all that hungry, probably because she's drinking so much water. And probably just the shock of it all. Yeah. So on around the fifth or sixth day, she hears a familiar bird call. Her mood immediately shifts to euphoria. She recognizes this call as that of hotsons, a type of bird that nests near open stretches of water and large rivers. So remember, she's in a little stream looking for a bigger body of water. Mm -hmm. So she's hoping her small stream is about to lead her to a large river. She hurries and tries to make faster progress and eventually finds the outlet of the small stream that she's been following into a larger river. But... The opening is blocked by a bunch of driftwood, and it's very overgrown with brush, so she has to get out of the stream and to go around, like, this barrier. So this takes her hours due to how thick and overgrown everything is, and also it's, like, six days, basically, without food. Yeah, so she's super weak. Yeah, she's probably not the strongest right now. So eventually she makes it through all the brush. She finds herself standing on the bank of a large river, about 30 feet wide. She looks down the river and sees a bunch of logs and driftwood, so it's not really navigable. She looks up through a break in the trees towards the sky. This is the first time she was really able to see through the canvas of trees, and she hears very distant search planes. She tries again to get their attention, but of course they can't see or hear her. She tries to keep her hopes up, but the constant plane engine noise she's heard over the last few days has become less and less. She thinks at this point that they've given up and that all the other potential su- potential survivors have been rescued except for her. So her brain is just being so mean to her right now. Yeah. She becomes very aware of, at this point of just how endless this jungle is. And she starts to feel really alone again. She still decides to continue down the river as her dad's words ring in her mind. Where there's a river, people can't be far. She stays close to the riverbank in the shallow water. She grabs a stick to help her feel around for dangerous creatures that could be in the river. There are dangerous stingrays that rest in the mud. And if you step on them, the sting they will sting you with their poisonous stinger, which combined with the bacteria that she's walking through can lead to blood poisoning. Yeah. So she has to be super careful. She also doesn't have her glasses, remember. So as she's walking, she's tripping and slipping on rocks, so she decides to go further into the river where the water is deeper. In the deeper water, there are piranhas and caiman alligators, but she knows they both don't usually attack people. And again, thank God she was raised the way that she was and has all this knowledge of these animals because I would simply pass away. (laughs) So when the sun starts to set, she looks for a safe place to spend the night. She spends her nights being attacked by mosquitoes and bugs. It rains on her and she freezes. She feels alone and she prays mainly about her mom. Oh. I know. I just want to hug her. 
The next day, she realizes the cuts and scrapes on her body are really starting to hurt, especially the one on the back of her arm that she can't really see. This gets really rough. So this Uh is a trigger warning right now. She tries to get a look at it and realizes there are half-inch-long maggots in it. (gasps) Oh. In her arm. Yeah. So... There's obviously not really anything she can do about it, so she just keep keeps swimming down the river. Through the day, she sees martens and brocket deer. She hears howler monkeys that sound super close. Usually, these animals are, are shy, and they don't appear scared of her at all. So this makes her think that these animals have never seen a person, which is bad. Over the next few days, she swims and lets herself drift down the river. She has many encounters with animals. At one point during a night when she's trying to sleep in the middle of some bushes, she hears hissing and pawing right next to her. She knows this is some type of big cat. She clears her throat and this startles the animal and it runs away. So just like, I don't even have words. (laughs) It could have been a freaking tiger. Who knows what, maybe not a tiger, but. Something that could have probably easily killed her. The next morning, she realizes that she has second-degree sunburn on her back, and it's literally bleeding. Because she's in the river and just exposed. This poor girl. Dude, I know. She continues on because it's not like she can do anything about it. So she's so weak at this point, she's just letting the current take her, and she just has to avoid colliding with logs that are in the river she's starting to hallucinate at this point thinking she can see the roof of a house up on the riverbank thinking she's hearing things she's so hungry she just fantasizes about food every morning it gets harder and harder for her to get up but she keeps pushing despite not knowing if there's any point to it one of the days she sinks into a sandbank on the river to rest what while (laughs) one of the days she sinks into a sandbank on the river to rest when she hears a squawk she opens her eyes and there's a baby caiman next to her she immediately jumps up because she knows she's in danger as she sees the mother very close she sinks into the river and continues floating again another close call so on day 10 Julianne spends the whole day just drifting down the river, bumping into logs. It takes more strength than she has to climb over them. In the evening, she finds a gravel bank and decides to sleep there. She dozes for a few minutes, and then when she opens her eyes, she sees a boat. She thinks she's hallucinating again. She tells herself it's impossible, but she rubs her eyes, and it's still there. Oh. So she swims over to it and touches it. It's real. It appears to be new and in working order. Oh. She noticed next to it a trail leading up from the river. She can even see footprints on this trail. <gasps> it's a 20-foot tr- like trail. It takes her hours to make this, this trek because of how weak she is. Finally, she sees a tambo, which is like a shelter or a hut. She sees the boat's outboard motor and a barrel of gasoline. So, at this point, she remembers the maggots in her arm and a time where a family dog had a similar wound and her father poured kerosene on it. So, she knows what she has to do. 
She pours some of the gas on her wound, which makes the maggots come out. At first, they try to, like, dig deeper into her arm. So it's, like, really freaking painful for a minute. But they do come out. And she's able to get, like, 30 of them out of her arm. So she's really proud of herself for this. I'm sorry. How many? 30 maggots. 30. And she didn't get all of them. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Take a moment of silence for Sam right now. Yeah. The entire thing has to go. Yeah. Yeah, it it needs to go. I don't want it. They can have it. I do not want. I don't want it. So she spends the night at this shelter hoping someone will show up at some point. She knows that there are shelters like this that are only used sporadically, so she considers taking the boat, but she doesn't want to risk saving herself and potentially leaving somebody else stranded in the jungle to die. So the next day, she stays at the Tambo. She's so weak at this point, she doesn't have the strength the strength to struggle to stand. She decides to stay here for the day and continue on tomorrow. Twilight hits and she hears voices. She again tells herself she's hallucinating, but three men approach, and they're real. Oh, yay. They're startled by her at first, but um, she starts speaking Spanish to them and tells them she was in the Lanza flight, and they just stare at her in astonishment. So the three men take care of Julianne. They give her food. They attend to her wounds and even get more maggots out of her arm. She asks them about survivors, and they tell her that not even the plane has been found. And that she is the only survivor. Oh, no. The men tell her that they hadn't even planned to come out to this tambo because it was raining. They rarely check on the boat, but they decided to anyway. So they agree that it's safer to stay the night at the tambo and that they would take Julianne to a doctor in Turnavista the next day in the boat. So the men give Julianne their only mosquito net for the night. Isn't that sweet? in the morning she tries to walk but the men end up carrying her to the boat and they cover her up with a tarp at this point julianne finally lets go and is able to sleep after 11 days in the amazon rainforest she was saved oh my god so the trip is long around 4 p.m they make it to turnavista immediately a stretcher is brought over for julianne and she's embarrassed by this because she says she can walk on her own like Bitch, just take the stretcher. Take it. (laughs) The nurse that comes to meet her, Julianne actually knows from the past. She gave Julianne a tetanus shot years ago before she came to Panguana initially. Yeah. Wow. So after her wounds were treated, an American pilot offered to take her on her plane, a female pilot, by the way, to a hospital so she can get further treatment. So Julianne has to fly again after she just survived a plane crash. She's too weak to protest, and she obviously needed, really needed, like, the treatment. Who knows what would have happened if she wouldn't fly? So the pilot named Jerry Cobb tries to reassure Julianne that she is safe with her and that Jerry is actually the first woman in the world to be trained as an astronaut. Fun fact. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that crazy? She's like, I can do the entire sky, actually. I got you. She said, not only the ozone layer hunting <laughs> all of all it all of it so 
Once Julianne's injuries were all treated, the doctor asks her what she wants to eat. She asks for a chicken sandwich and they make it for her. I just thought that was adorable. (laughs) I love that. She's finally safe and now she falls into a deep sleep for the first time in 11 days. So after her injuries were treated, Julianne was reunited with her father. She helped authorities locate the crash site and the bodies of the other passengers. Her mother's body was found on January 12, 1972. They found that her mother survived the initial crash, but died a few days later due to her injuries. And I think it's just horrific to think about what her final days were like. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know... Yeah, stuck in the jungle wondering where her daughter is. Exactly. You know, you she she did not care about herself she wanted to know that julianne was okay yeah 90 other people died in the crash and it's believed that 14 of them survived the initial impact but were too injured to wander out into the jungle like julianne could julianne like i said earlier later learned the aircraft was made entirely of spare parts from other planes that is mind-blowing that that was even able to be put in the sky yeah by january 4th 1972 the peruvian government revoked lanza's operating certificate as they should the airline had already ceased all operations as this crash was the last worthy lockheed l188 electra that lanza had all other aircraft had already been phased out or were lost in accidents or grounded in Lima as inoperative. So the cause of the crash was officially listed as an intentional decision by the airline to send the plane into hazardous weather conditions. Over the years, Julianne has struggled to understand how she came to be the only survivor of Lanza Flight 508. Experts have said that she survived the fall because she was harnessed into her seat, the window seat, which was attached to the two seats to her left as part of a row of three. So that was thought to have functioned as a parachute, kind of, which slowed her fall. Okay. The impact may have also been lessened by the updraft from the thunderstorm that Julianne fell through, as well as thick foliage at her landing site. So hitting that tree canopy, like, Mm -hmm. stopped it a little bit. After the crash, the media very much overwhelmed Julianne. There were many articles that came out that claimed to tell her story, but a lot of them only spread misinformation. She remained silent for years to protect herself. So Julianne returned to her parents' native country, Germany, where she fully recovered from her physical injuries. Like her parents, she studied biology at the University of Kiel and graduated in 1980. She received a doctorate from Ludwig Ludwig, Maximilian University in Munich and returned to Peru to conduct research in mammalogy, specializing in bats. Just like her mama. I know. She published her thesis titled Ecological Study of a Bat Colony in the Tropical Rainforest of Peru in 1987. In 1989, she married her husband, Eric Diller, who is a German entomologist who specializes in parasitic wasps. So just a bunch of scientists out here. Wow. In 2000, after her father died, she took over as the director of Panguana. Panguana is to be declared a nature reserve. This was her father's dream and something he spent decades working on. And Julianne achieved his dream. Oh. 
She currently serves as a librarian at the Bavarian State Collection of Zoology in Munich. And I mentioned this earlier, but 27 years after the crash, filmmaker Werner Herzog, who was supposed to be on that flight, wanted to make a film with Julianne about her experience. He would send an expedition to find the crash site and make it accessible. It took four trips for the crew to finally find the wreckage with Julianne's help. So finally, she was ready to tell her story on her terms, and she went back to the crash site to do that. You can watch the film titled Wings of Hope and read Julianne's book titled When I Fell from the Sky. Um, and then I'm going to end this little section on a quote from Julianne. The jungle is as much a part of me as my love for my husband, the music of the people who live along the Amazon and its tributaries, and the scars that remain from the plane crash. Oh. Now, I have a little side tangent because, like I said, Elena from Morgan from Morbid covered this. She did a really good job, in my opinion. So a lot of people that might be listening right now might think, I am never going to fly again. Or I am never going to fly, period. <laughs> Sam's raising her hand. So, um, how do modern planes protect, protect against lightning strikes? Lightning strikes happen on average at least once a year to each aircraft in service. Like this is something that's very common. So there's a series of FAA mandated lightning certification tests to ensure that if and when an aircraft is struck by lightning, the passenger's crew as well as the plane's fuel and flight systems are protected from significant damage that could put a flight in danger. Aluminum is a strong, lightweight, superb conductor of electricity that comprises the skin or outer shell of most modern aircraft. If lightning does strike an aircraft, usually on the nose, wingtips, or tail rudder, the electric current passes from the strike point through the aircraft and back out via another prominent point. So they, they have all these things in place that basically just sends the lightning strike, the electricity, out of the plane. Okay. A second skin inside of the outer shell protects the cabin and other interior compartments, <laughs> including any internal electronics. This is a metal mesh that surrounds the aircraft's interior that is enveloped in silicone. The electrical charge from lightning strikes is then channeled along this mesh on the outer side of the plane, much like Faraday, much like a Faraday cage. Faraday cage? I don't know which is used to block electromagnetic charges from entering the cabin itself. So you're not going to get electrocuted on a plane. Engineers also install bundles of shielded wiring throughout the airplane, as well as additional wire mesh, metallic diverter strips, and other metal or composite-based items. These additions help to, help to provide an easier path for a lightning strike to pass through the aircraft while keeping the electrical system safe. So it's like a freeway around a large city, they say. Commercial aircraft and private jets are also outfitted with static discharge wicks, which are designed to remove static electricity while in flight. An aircraft that is statically charged acts like a magnet for lightning. By dissipating the static through the wicks, the likelihood of a strike is greatly diminished. New generation aircraft like the Boeing 787 and Airbus A350 are manufactured with a much higher percentage of composite materials 
including carbon fibers. This results in a lower electrical conductivity of the wings and fuselage. So that's a lot of gibberish, and I don't know what a lot of it means, but you are safe flying in a plane. And if Julianne can do it, still to this day, you can do it. Fair enough. <laughs> and I have links to um, about Panguana. If you want to, if anybody wants to donate to their efforts, I'll link their website. And then I'll, like I said, I'll link her book and then the movie. There's several documentaries about her story, but the most accurate one is Wings of Hope, which is directed by Werner Herzog. She was involved in it. But yeah, that's the survival story of Mrs. Bad Bitch Julianne Kopka. That is insane. Right? Wow. Yeah, the way my mind was blown. I think I first heard of this from the Morbid episode and immediately I was like, that, I'm I'm going to cover that. Yeah. That's, oh, I cannot imagine. Yeah, I could never, I would not survive. Yeah, oh, absolutely not. But I didn't have two scientists as parents. I so. did not either. My parents set me up for failure in the, in this situation. <laughs> I would never survive in the Amazon. Oh. <laughs> That's a lot to process. I could not survive, let alone, what was it, 11 days? 11 days, yeah. <laughs> no. Surviving a plane getting struck by lightning, falling apart, falling 10,000 feet into the jungle, and then getting out of the jungle alive yourself like she didn't even she didn't get rescued she rescued herself she yeah. found help wow yeah i told you that was a long one that's brutal yeah, yeah i think but she she survived and she lives on to follow in her parents footsteps and achieve her father's dreams I love that. I know. It's a happy story. It's a happy ending. Yes. Well, that story traumatized me to no end. Yeah. But just remember, if you ever are like, hmm, maybe I should go on this vacation and that requires a plane, but I'm scared, Julianne does it. So you can do it. And also, no plane has ever crashed due to turbulence. Fun fact. Oh. I didn't know so, that. You're safe. All right. Well, you are you ready for me to ruin your day? Yeah. I mean, you always do. <gasps> so, yeah. Perfect. Okay. I am going to cover. Sorry, I'm not yawning at you. I'm just tired. <laughs> no, dude. I am struggling to stay awake right now yeah me too and it's 7 p.m ep girls yeah all right so i am going to cover adriana zimmerman have you ever heard of her no but she has a pretty name i know i love that name all right so on the night of march 24th 2010 Terrence Hendrick was sitting outside his Florida home enjoying a perfectly spring night, you know, just literally perfect spring night. 
and suddenly he heard a faint cry. He couldn't really make out what it was at first. Um, and then it got closer and he realized it was a female and she was asking for help. The way I would be terrified and would assume that I'm going to be human trafficked. Oh, absolutely. The way I would have immediately tucked tail and ran. Yeah. Ran into my house. Yes. But since it was so dark, he was not able to see her. Um, He was trying to find her, but he couldn't. And eventually he was able to spot her. And what he seen was something of nightmares. Walking towards him was a young woman who had been severely beaten and set on fire. Oh my god. (laughs) It takes... Well, let me stop because I don't know what happened yet. Um, it... Let me let me pause you. Hi, Talon. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> I waved at him, but I didn't want to interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> this woman was 19-year-old Adriana Zimmerman. When Zimmerman finally reached Terrence's house, she sat on his front steps and waited for help as he called 911. Um Terrence noted that her skin was so severely burnt he couldn't identify whether or not she was wearing clothes. He could not identify her race and she had an extremely strong smell of gasoline. Okay, so now I'm going to say it takes a different breed of person to do this to somebody. Absolutely. Because I think we can... I can gather that somebody did this to her. Yes. Um, I do, before we get deeper into this, this entire case is a trigger warning. Yeah. Um, and the, I'll, put that, I'll put that in the show notes, too. What Adriana went through, I can't, like, I, there's not a reason on this planet that would yeah. make to anybody. set somebody on fire yeah. um at 9 24 p.m emts arrived an emt arrived at the scene um when he when the emt approached zimmerman he observed her again sitting on the porch rocking back and forth with her arms straight out is that the that was the only way she was able to have some comfort like, i don't understand just- how she's even like walking slash sitting like just sitting up like yeah survived this um again trigger warning the next well again entire episode but what i'm gonna get into now is kind of not for the faint of heart the emt noticed that zimmerman's skin was falling off of her body oh my god he believed that over 90 percent of her body was burned she had severe head trauma, and her jaw was either broken or severely dislocated. Oh, my God. He explained that the extent and severity of her burns prevented him from pr- providing Zimmerman uh, medical assistance just because what he had available to him, essentially, you know, he might as well have just handed her a Band-Aid. Yeah. 
Here you go. Here is a Hello Kitty Band-Aid. Yes. For your entire body. Um, He testified that while generally, while he generally placed sterile gauze and oxygen on the burns, he didn't have enough to, again, cover her body. He tried to stabilize her neck, but her skin was so charred, he could not touch her without her skin rubbing off on his gloves. Oh my god. This Dis- is this is like oh. the worst thing I've ever heard. It's oh my god. I and really then, think this might be like top like 10 worst things, worst cases slash worst things I've ever heard about. Yes. And like 19 years old. Yeah. But just we we get into it. Just don't it's rough. Just did, her- did you say don't worry? Probably, but I'm nervous. I'm worried. <laughs> One thing, one thing I can tell you right now, I am worried. <laughs> um, uh, despite her Im- injuries, she was very conscious and alert. Oh my god, that's even worse. It's too bad she couldn't have just been literally like passed out. Truly, that would have been so much easier. However, she was not due to her being conscious and alert. She was not only able to identify her attackers; she gave them their addresses as well. Oh my god. This this episode is bad the baddest of the baddest of baddest. Just heroic women. Truly. That you picked a good case to put with mine. Um her attackers, Tina Brown, Tina's 16-year-old daughter Brittany Miller, a 13-year-old friend of Brittany's, and Heather Lee, which was a friend of Tina's. Those four girls were um the four that she identified sorry um she also provided her home address and asked the emt to quote protect my children oh my god so she had two little ones at home she told the emt that she was quote drug out of the house tased beaten in the head with a crowbar and then set on fire and what what kind of people are these like who does this what could this girl have done to these people to do this to her do you see how hard i'm white knuckling my microphone i do i'm so stressed out (laughs) um so the friend of britney's kind of doesn't play any part in this um so it was she, the other three basically yes it was tina Brittany, and heather who were the three that i don't even know how to describe it like i can't even put it into words them three disgusting people anyways um the ambulance arrived within a few minutes and transported zimmerman to the hospital inside the ambulance zimmerman repeatedly asked if she was going to be okay She told the paramedic that Brown, Miller, and Lee poured gasoline on her and set her on fire. She also stated that she, quote, thought they had made up, end quote. So they had a fight or something? Yeah. It's just petty stuff, pretty much, in my opinion. Do we get Um, to find out what it is? Yeah, we'll cover it a little bit. Okay. Um, Zimmerman was stabilized at a local hospital and then transferred to the burn center at the University of South Alabama Hospital in Mobile. 
where unfortunately she passed away 16 days later. Oh my god. I was hoping she made it through this whole thing. Yeah. Tina, Brittany, Heather, and Adriana all lived at the same uh, trailer park. The four women were initially good friends, but their relationships, especially between Tina and Brittany, were extremely volatile and they often escalated to violence. Tina previously accused Adriana of slashing her tires. Adriana had accused Brown of shattering a window in her car, having her boyfriend arrested, and reporting to um, Job and Family Services that she was not taking good care of her kids, pretty much. So it's like petty, like neighborly feuding is kind of what it sounds like. Yeah. There was a really good um, YouTube video I seen that covered this. We'll link it in the show notes. It goes um, into a lot of detail about the investigation and, like, their interviews and everything. Um, Highly recommend watching that. Lee testified that she had intervened on multiple occasions trying to stop physical altercations between Brittany and Adriana. On one occasion, uh, Brittany, who had recently discovered adriana was sexually involved with her boyfriend attempted to strike her so Brittany is the 16 year old yes okay and again adriana is only 19 yeah okay yeah um, so Brittany thought adriana was seeing her boyfriend or adriana was seeing her boyfriend yeah uh, Zimmerman, however, defended herself by attempting to disable Brittany with a stun gun. Later that day, Heather informed Tina that Adriana had used a, sun- a stun gun on Brittany. But Brittany was attacking Adriana, right? That's what yeah. we... Yeah. Yes. Um, to, which Tina's respo- to which Tina responded that she was, quote, going to get Zimmerman. Which, I mean is a fair response like if yeah like i get it she's protecting her daughter like i totally get that and i can see where she would be really like irate about that but um and so that happened just a few days before this incident uh again march 24th 2010 tina invited adriana over and um in the guise of rekindling their friendship i lost my spot before adriana arrived tina heather Brittany, and uh britney's 13 year old friend which i didn't get a name for that just because she didn't really have any part in this whatsoever yeah it's probably best to just leave it out anyway yeah tina and heather were in the kitchen where heather instructed tina on the proper use of a stun gun Brittany then pulled her friend aside and told her quote we're fixing to kill adriana zimmerman oh my god oh my god the fact that a 16 year old is just like casually like okay with that oh yeah and like i understand like i understand like teenagers what am i trying to say I just feel like in this specific scenario, like, I feel like that speaks a lot to, like, who the mom is. Oh, absolutely. And 
um we'll kind of get into the mom's background once the trial starts because they do bring up tina's upbringing okay we won't get too in-depth just because i feel we'll we'll cross that bridge when we get there um shortly after 9 p.m adriana entered the trailer uh Tina waited several minutes and then used the sun stun gun on Adriana multiple times. When Adriana lost muscular control and fell to the floor, Tina continued to use the stun gun on her. Who was, you know, by this point, she was screaming and crying for help. Eventually, Tina pulled Zimmerman across the trailer into the bathroom. Adriana continued to cry and scream for help. So... Brittany struck Zimmerman in the face and Heather stuffed a sock into her mouth to muffle her from screaming and crying. She was then forcibly escorted outside and forced into the trunk of Tina's car. Tina, Heather, and Brittany then entered the vehicle and drove away. They drove to a clearing in the woods about a mile and a half from the trailer park. Tina exited the car and pulled Zimmerman out of the trunk. She attempted to flee but stumbled into the darkness and was caught by Tina and Brittany. They wrestled her to the ground and then just brutally attacked her. Tina used the stun gun on Adriana as Brittany beat her with a crowbar. They then switched weapons and continued to torture her. So it's just mom, mom and daughter. Mother-daughter bonding. Yes. Brittany eventually dropped the stun gun and repeatedly punched Adriana. Tina reported, or I'm sorry, Tina returned to the car and retrieved a can of gasoline from the trunk, walked back toward the beaten and prone but still conscious Adriana poured gasoline on her, retrieved a lighter from her pocket, and set Zimmerman on fire. They then stood nearby, watching as Zimmerman screamed and burned. What kind of monster is this? these people? Oh, let me finish the next couple sentences and then... Oh my god, I need, have... to take, I need to take a drink of water before that. You'll have your prepare. answer. Okay, I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Heather later testified that she was standing beside Brittany, the night, or I'm sorry, the 16 year old, who was excitingly, excitedly jumping up and down and screamed, "Burn, bitch, burn!" What? What Six- is wrong with these people? 16 year old. I cannot emphasize this enough. After a few minutes, meaning they stood there and watched her burn for minutes. Excitedly. Um, the three women returned to the car and drove away. During the ride, however, Brittany, fucking dumbass, she said, Mom, we have to turn around. I forgot my shoes and my taser. You? Oh, my God. <laughs> 
I'm trying not to scream into my microphone right now. Um, Tina, however, she refused to go back. Shortly after this, Adriana was able to walk roughly one third of a mile. And that's when Terrence noticed her and called 911. She, the way she got up after this and walked, oh, and walked one third of a mile. Mm, yeah. Was she still on fire? No. Oh, okay. No. <clears throat> when Heather, Brittany, and Tina returned to Tina's trailer, Brittany and Tina removed their bloodstained clothing and placed it in a garbage bag. Heather removed her shoes, which were also stained with blood, and placed them in that in the same bag. Brittany informed her friend who had remained at the trailer during everything that happened. Um, she told her that she hurt her hand while beating Adriana and that they set her on fire. So can you imagine this poor 13 year old? You know, she's just like, I, I want to go home. Mom, pick me up. I'm scared. I think I'm actually supposed to be grounded. I'm not yeah. even supposed to be here. Yeah. Mom, pick me up. I'm scared. And and she's 13, so she can't. Like, what's she going to do? Just leave? Yeah. She probably needs somebody to pick her up. Brittany and her friend then used Tina's car to drive to the hospital to get uh, medical care for Brittany's hand. Before returning to the hospital early the next morning, Brittany discarded of the bag of bloodstained clothing in a dumpster and attempted to remove the bloodstains from inside of the car, which just we love dumb criminals honestly uh with the information provided by adriana law enforcement officers were able to apprehend tina and heather shortly after the attack and then Brittany was arrested after she returned to from the hospital the next day however they were all three released while zimmerman was in the hospital they all had contradicting stories about what was going on and time frames and everything and again that youtube video that i'll link has actual footage of those interviews i'm sorry interrogations watch it because it really you can see their personalities my connection is unstable <laughs> relatable like me <laughs> i was gonna say um based on like you said that you can really see their personalities like see that in their personalities in the interview i feel like this incident or this instance is not the first time they have like done something like this like retaliated on somebody in this way and maybe maybe they never killed anybody before or maybe it's never been this bad but i don't feel like this is the first time that they've done this yeah you know and i i feel like there's a lot of fantasy behind that too you know what i mean yeah i don't know i couldn't i could never i feel like it's the mindset of like i feel like maybe the mom like that mindset of like oh it's like she disrespected us she disrespected our family we're gonna show her we're gonna show her how badass we are yeah like you're a monster actually and 
there's just so much going on between the four of these girls in such close quarters i think that had a lot of a lot to do with it too yeah they're just like all feeding off of each other's energy they were released while adriana adriana was still in the hospital during that time tina informed her friend pamela valley that she miller and heather i'm sorry Brittany miller and uh heather had beaten zimmerman forced her into a car um driven her to an open field and quote lit her on fire and didn't look back end quote why would you brag about that i like we love a dumb criminal but why would like where does your mindset have to be that you brag about that to somebody yeah. like, you are really actually truly sick and like in the head in every aspect you are sick and in the interrogation they did nothing but sob like just crying over this you know um a few days later tina inf- uh, informed her friend that adriana was still alive and requested her friend to quote finish her off are you kidding me no <laughs> Um, obviously this friend declined and later reported the con- conversation to law enforcement. Tina Brown, Brittany Miller, and Heather Lee were re- re-arrested on April 9th, 2010, which is the date of Adriana's death. Wow. At the scene, at the scene of the burning, law enforcement officers discovered several several pieces of evidence, including white shoes, the stun gun with the blood on the handle, um, paper stained with blood, an orange, gold, and black hair weave. And I do want to note that one of the officers that had interviewed interviewed Tina after she was arrested on the night of the attack noticed that she was missing a large section of hair from the back of her head and it matched that hair weave discovered at the scene. So they literally ripped her hair out. Yes. Um, they discovered the crowbar and a pool of blood. Additional blood was discovered on the passenger seat headrest in Brown's vehicle. Um, during trial, a DNA expert testified that blood on the headrest matched the known DNA profile of Adriana. Another DNA expert testified that the blood on the stun gun matched the known DNA profile of Tina. Finally, the medical examiner testified that the cause of Adriana's death was multiple thermal injuries and the manner of death was hom- was homicide. So she died from her burns. Yeah. They went into, again, Tina's background during the trial. Um, essentially, her mom just up and left when she was young and then her dad sexually abused her. I mean, that's terrible. Yeah. One of the sources is actually from the court itself during this trial, and it goes into depth about it. Um, But I don't want to give her a pity party. What she went, what Tina went through as a child is horrible, but that's no excuse for how she behaves today. Yeah. Um, Tina was sentenced to death. Good. Brittany dodged the death penalty that's too bad because she was a minor at the time of the crime um 
had she been 18 or over she would have in my opinion probably got the death penalty yeah and heather was sentenced to 25 years after a plea agreement tina is actually one of only three women on florida's death row and in 2019 they revisited uh britney's case since she was no longer a child a child and she still got life in prison so she needs the death penalty too truly but yeah that's the murder of adriana zimmerman that was literally the worst thing i've ever heard one of like top five worst things i've ever heard yeah and then just i i wish we could get more into depth about the psychology behind tina and britney yeah because they're feeding off each other yeah i hated every second of that i did not enjoy this either i am uncomfortable and i am sad now i'm i'm sorry (laughs) thank you so much if you see tina i'm just trying to see if i can pull up a picture of her she just looks like she belongs on death row she belongs in the ground is where she belongs really she needs to be curb stomped and then set on fire which i was i don't think i could find her execution date if she's got if she has one yet i hope it's tomorrow i kind of feel sick to my stomach now after hearing that i'm so sorry yeah it's rough (laughs) and her poor kids yeah i wonder what ended up did her mom or dad take the kids I, um, I, I believe so and no she does not have an execution date as of yet well that's too bad she needs to have one i agree completely oh it was first degree premeditated murder as it should be yeah i can't find it well, that was terrible, Sam, but thank you so much for that. And thank you, everyone who is listening to us. We love you all. And if you want to keep up with us, you can follow us on our socials. Instagram is eerie thoughts with a zero, TikTok, eerie.thoughts.pod, Facebook, eerie thoughts podcast. I'm on Instagram as Queen Bench with a V. Sam is S A M M underscore Storad 1415. And you can send us your eerie stories and episode suggestions to eeriethoughtspod at gmail.com. Do you have anything, Sam? No, ma'am. We love you all. Thank you for listening. Bye, bitches. Bye, bitches. Hi, Sadie. Was that her behind you? She's an EP girl. She EP girl. I need to I need to speak with her after we're done, by the way. Oh, God. Please don't <laughs> tell on me. I'm telling on you. No. <laughs> I forgot you, to take your picture. Your mother forgot to give me my picture that you drew for me. <laughs> you hear her heavy breathing. She's No, I can't. I just see her speechless. <laughs> Before Adriana arrived, Tina, Heather, 
and Brittany, along with her, Brittany's 13-year-old friend, were inside the trailer. Tina and Heather were in the kitchen where uh, Heather and, and the, oh my God. That was you. That was 100% me. She <laughs> said, go to bed. She said, <laughs> <laughs> Were you speaking Latin to me? What was that? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that has to stay in. <laughs> the way I panicked. You, look, you literally look like a deer in headlights. I looked at you like, help me, bitch. <laughs> you looked at me like you were scared. I was. <laughs> Oh my god. Sound it out, hunty. <laughs> I'm gonna get you hooked on phonics. <laughs> and then I'll borrow it after you use it. <laughs> Please do. I'm crying. <laughs> calm down. I need to calm down too. Let me. Oh my god. Oh no. 